0: We are beginning a new series this morning. We are going to give our attention to the pastoral letters written by the Apostle Paul. Um, let me explain something here first. I was, uh, we go through, I mean, well, that's our pattern, is to take a book of the Bible and then work our way through that book. Uh, we just finished going through Psalm 119, all 176 verses. We went through that. We keep alternating back and forth. Before Psalm 119, we went through the book of Acts, which is a book of history. Before the book of Acts, we went through a minor prophet, the book of Zechariah. And so now we're going back to the New Testament to deal with an epistle with a letter. All scripture is inspired by God, and we need all of it. We need, we need to understand from every aspect of the scripture what is there for us. So that's why we're moving to the New Testament now. Well, pastoral letters are made up of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Uh, of course, Timothy, the, Timothy books were written to Timothy. Titus was written to Titus and um, by Paul. Each of these letters are, impor- are uh, really key in understanding the importance of the church because each of these men, Timothy and Titus, were serving as pastors whenever Paul wrote to them, giving them counsel, on God's purposes for the church, uh, how it's to be properly ordered, how they were to give leadership, in the circumstances they were in. Really, over the years, was one of the things that the Lord has done in my heart, um, is to help me to understand and get a greater appreciation for the importance of the local church. Um, I believe that's something that is so that is emphasized so strongly in the scriptures and. One of the things that excites me about going through the pastoral letters is because they are very much focused on the local church and um, what it's to be, what it's to be like, and what God's purpose for that church is. So this letter, first letter to Timothy is one that's very close to my heart. So let's look at the first five verses here, First Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So the first two verses here, we see Paul identifying himself as the, the writer, the sender of the letter, and Timothy as the one who is receiving it. Uh, and then he's also given a, a greeting there, and, uh, and then verse 3, he begins to uh, remind Timothy of what Paul left him there for, and then begins to give him some instruction. So we'll start with the first point on your outline, which is this. The overall purpose of Paul's letter to Timothy is to make clear the proper ordering of the church of God. We know from Acts 19 that Paul had a ministry in Ephesus that lasted two to three years, probably closer to three. That's longer than he stayed in most any other place. Uh, So he clearly considered Ephesus to be a key city in taking the gospel to the Roman Empire, which is the idea of taking the gospel to the world. We're told in Acts 19, verse 10, that while Paul preached and taught in Ephesus in particular, we're told there that Jews and Greeks from all over Asia heard and believed. This happened because they came to hear Paul, Paul preach and teach, but also they heard the teaching of his fellow workers who were with him, and of course others kept repeating things that they had heard and taught, and it, it spread out of Ephesus. Ephesus was also the city Where the Temple of Artemis was located. Uh, The Temple of Artemis was a remarkable building that was actually considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so the worship of Artemis was central to Ephesus and really central to all of Asia at that time. So preaching the gospel in such a sustained and direct way actually was a direct attack on the idolatry of of the worship of Artemis. And ultimately, Those who profited by making silver shrines of Artemis started a riot, and Paul and those with him were forced to leave the city. That was around 57 AD. But he continued to have great concern for the church at Ephesus because it was soon after he had to leave, at the end of his third missionary journey, he called for the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him um, in the, the, the town of Miletus. And he gave them a final farewell, encouraged them to stand firm in the faith. And he also gave them a very sober warning. The Lord made him aware of some things that he was making the church aware of. And I want to read to you some verses from Paul's message to the Ephesian elders. And this is Acts 20, verses 28 to 32. Paul said to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who were sanctified. So Paul gives them a warning about people he describes as savage wolves that would come in to devour the flock. In fact, he told them that this attack on the flock was going to arise really from within the flock, and even more specifically from within the group of elders who were there, whose job it was to lead the flock. Well, after this, Paul uh, returned to Jerusalem, he ended up being arrested, brought back to Rome where he was prisoner there from like 60 to 62. And during that imprisonment in Rome, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians uh, to further encourage the church, which is the book of Ephesians and our Bibles. And then we're not told this in the book of Acts. But it seems likely that Paul was released from that imprisonment. He was able to do further mission work in the Roman Empire, possibly even into Spain. And it was during that time of further ministry that Paul urged Timothy to stay on at Ephesus, as he points out here, and to address the problems they were having. Problems that Paul had warned them about probably five years earlier. So that's the context of this letter to Timothy. Now, if you look over at 1 Timothy three fourteen to 15, that's where Paul gives his purpose for writing this letter to Timothy. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, the truths that he's speaking of communicating here to Timothy, I'm sure he had already communicated to the church at Ephesus when he was there. Like I said, he was there for for an extended period of time, um, teaching and so forth. But with the passing of time and with the coming to pass of false teachers in their midst, he once again writes to them on how one should conduct themselves within the church of the living god he says the church is the pillar and support of truth so there has to be careful attention to communicating and preserving the truth we should also take note of the fact that when paul wrote this letter to the ephesian church he spoke of the church there as he spoke of the church there as well in his letter to the ephesians and one of the themes of that letter is what paul calls the mystery the idea of the mystery, he uses that phrase or that word six different times in his letter to the Ephesian church. And it's also no coincidence that another theme, which kind of goes hand in hand with the mystery, another theme of the book of Ephesians is uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just the phrase in Christ, of Christ, just shows all, comes up all throughout the book, especially in the first few chapters. So... It's the person and work of Christ that is actually the context, the content of this mystery that he speaks of. Now, when we use the term mystery, a lot of times we're talking about something that you can never really know. You can never really understand because it's so mysterious. Well, that's not how the Bible uses the term mystery. When the Bible uses the term mystery, it talks about something that's secret, but it's been revealed. It's a secret that's been made known. And so what we're talking about here, the secret has to do with the purposes of God. The purposes of God that have been accomplished, revealed, and accomplished, and carried out through Christ Jesus. That's the mystery revealed. It's all focused on Christ. And because it is connected with Christ and the gospel, this mystery has everything to do with the body of Christ, the church. For example, a couple more things here from the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2 and 3, we see there that Paul talks about the bringing together of those who were Jewish Christians, those who were Gentile Christians, bringing them together into one new man, one body. And he calls that a mystery. And And it's because Christ is the one who accomplished it. But it's a mystery. Over in Ephesians 5, Paul describes the relationship of husbands and wives as a mystery. And then he says earlier, I'm speaking there with reference to Christ and the church. That's the mystery But he's talking about husbands and wives. Earlier he had said that wives were to subject themselves to their husbands as as to the Lord. Husbands were to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So the gospel is all bound up and marriage, which is all tied into this mystery, which is all, again, all tied up into Christ. These truths that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus are in the background of what Paul is writing now to Timothy as he pastors that church in Ephesus. In the commentary on uh, pastoral letters, Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell say it this way. This is a quote on your outline. They say the practical ordering of the church has everything to do with the revelation of the mystery of Christ to the world. The practical ordering of the church has everything to do with the revelation of the mystery of Christ to the world. That's what's going on in Paul's letter to Timothy. The local church is central to God's eternal purposes. And we can see from the opening verses of this letter that Paul understands exactly what's at stake here. As you probably know, the format that Paul uses to write this letter is what was common in the Greek-Roman world at this time. They would start, I'd start by identifying who the writer was first. Then secondly, they would talk about who was, the letter was being written to. Um, then they would be given a greeting before they move on to the body of the letter. Well, that's exactly what we see here. So in verse 1, Paul identifies himself as the, as the writer. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. So from this verse, we see the next point in your outline, which is this. Paul spoke clearly about the Lord's calling in his life to enable him to speak with clear authority about the church. To the church and about the church. Clear authority. Paul identifies himself as an apostle. He was one of the ones who was called out and sent out by Jesus Christ for this foundational role in the church. As an apostle, Paul had authority to speak for the Lord, to, you could say to speak and write revelation from God. As an apostle, he was enabled to do that. Timothy, of course, was well aware of this himself. But then Paul added something that he only included in this letter, He said he was an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. I mean, this makes it clear that Paul understood very clearly that this letter was more than a personal letter to Timothy. There was more to it than that. He is saying that he was sovereignly called. In fact, he was commanded To be an apostle by the triune God. This would give Timothy comfort, help, as he takes the information and what, what Paul is telling him and then shares it with the church from someone who's been called out to God and commanded by God to give him this message. So it's going to help him when he's confronting people who don't like what he has to say. But I think it also means that Paul really understood clearly that he was writing scripture that was going to be read and studied and applied by people all over the world for generations to come. Every believer needed to understand God's authoritative direction for the proper ordering of the church. We see here this command comes from God, our Savior, The Bible makes it clear that salvation is of the Lord. It's based in his eternal purpose and decree. And it's truly an amazing thing. Yes, God is our creator. We know that. But in Adam, all mankind has sinned against the Lord. Sin has made us enemies of God. And since God is just, our sin must and will be condemned. But God is also full of grace. And as the God of grace, he is God, our Savior. So he purposed that the Son would take on human flesh and come into this sinful world. He would live a fully righteous life. He would die as a substitute, as a sacrifice for sinners. He would be raised from the dead for all who would believe. And so praise the Lord, God is our Savior. Well, Paul not only spoke of serving as an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, but he also reminds Timothy right up front that it's Christ Jesus who is also our hope. I mean, this is a certain kind of hope. Again, the way we use mystery is not exactly how the Bible uses it, and the way we use the word hope is not exactly how the Bible uses hope either. We oftentimes speak of hope as just hoping there's going to be good weather today, or hoping, any number of things we could put there. This is a hope that is absolutely certain. It's going to take place. This is a confident hope. And its confidence is that our salvation has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. God is, in fact, our Savior, and our salvation has been fully accomplished. So all who are in Christ, every person's salvation has the hope, every person has that hope that that salvation will be fully accomplished throughout eternity. It's an absolute certain hope. So our hope is not in other people. Our hope is not in how much money we have. Uh, our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in good luck. Our hope is in Christ. And he reminds him again, right up front, or just saying, just this is just identifying who's writing the letter. And he brings all this doctrine in. I mean, Paul just kind of exudes this stuff, because that's who he is, that's what he believes, that's how he, that's, be nice, I'd like to be more like that myself. So from the beginning, Paul not only speaks clearly about the authority he has been given by God to speak these words, but he also reminds us of what our real hope is. Well, next, we see who the letter was written to, and what what it was all about. He says, "...to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord." As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. So we see here this next point that Paul encouraged Timothy and the Lord so that he would be able to faithfully pastor in a church with difficult challenges, pastor in church with difficult challenges. He speaks of Timothy as his true child and the faith. Timothy's mother was a Christian. Uh, his father was not. They lived in the pagan town of Lystra. It's likely that Timothy was converted during Paul's first missionary journey that went through that city. Paul was nearly stoned to death in Lystra, Timothy's hometown. And it was at the beginning, though, of Paul's second missionary journey, when they went back through Lystra to encourage the church that was there, that Timothy actually was encouraged to join with and did join with Paul and actually continued with Paul as one of his fellow workers really all the rest of his life, as best we can understand. So when Paul speaks of Timothy as his true child in the faith, he's speaking of the genuineness of the faith that he's seen in Timothy. He's seen real evidence of someone who is a true believer. He's also speaking of his commitment to Timothy. I'm seeing this young man as my son, as my child. And he's also speaking of Timothy's commitment to Paul. Timothy had been faithful to Paul like a son would be. This, of course, is all going to be encouraging for Timothy to read right up front. But then Paul elaborates on the traditional greeting that normally would be contained in one of the Greek Roman letters. The standard greeting would be greetings. Well, Paul turned that greeting into a triple blessing from the Lord, grace, mercy, and peace. And he's not just being nice. He's not just saying kind words. These words speak of real, tangible blessings that come from God, our Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. They each speak of the help and the strength that the Lord would give to Timothy. Grace, of course, is God's undeserved favor. It speaks of the fact, we get this also from Ephesians, that by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. So there is a certainty about salvation because it's based on God's grace, not on our works. If it's based on our works, there is no certainty whatsoever. But if your salvation is based on God's grace, it's certain, it's sure. And he speaks of that grace. But this is not just grace to kind of get you in the kingdom. This is the kind of grace to see you through all the rest of your life, and Timothy's going to need that. He's going to need that continued grace because he's got a hard job in front of him. So he's speaking grace to Timothy. Peace is another word that Paul commonly used in these greetings, and it's first off, peace with God. We are no longer his enemies. We are at peace with him as God our Savior. And because of being at peace with God, we can have this inner peace as well, which, once again, is going to be important for Timothy in his situation. Well, Paul uses also a third word here that he doesn't use in any of his other greetings, mercy. It's only with Timothy in this first letter that he brings in mercy as well. Mercy speaks of God's special care for someone in need. <clears throat> it speaks of suffering because of sin and misery and the results that the misery that results from that sin. It speaks of God's special help to those who are in hard situations. And so Paul likely included mercy in this opening blessing to further encourage Timothy as he addressed as Timothy was going to, have to address these troublesome teachers that were causing havoc in the church, he's going to need God's mercy as well as he does this. So this greeting ends up being a prayer that God would give Timothy the grace, the mercy, the peace that he would need to teach the Ephesian church about the proper ordering of the church of Christ. Well, that brings us to Paul's opening instructions in verses 3 to 5. Again, he says, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So our second main point is this, and that is a focus on right instruction is an important part of what the Lord requires in his church. So after a very rich and encouraging introduction to this letter, Paul gets right to the problem that was going on at Ephesus. And it's interesting because the fact that he gets right to it kind of points out something he left out. Often what Paul would do at this point is give a thanksgiving for the church. He doesn't give a thanksgiving for the church at Ephesus. Maybe because, because of what's going on. I don't know exactly about why he left it out. I war- it's almost like I can almost hear, okay, I warned you about this. I've given you instruction about this, and it's here anyway. So I'm just going to leave off the Thanksgiving part. I don't know what he was thinking, but there was no Thanksgiving. He just gets right to the point, and that could be also just because it's so pressing, and he wants to get right to the point and make, sure, make his point to Timothy. So he says in verse 3 that he left Timothy in Ephesus so that he could instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now, Timothy, of course, knows who these certain men are. I have no doubt that Paul named names on what, where he needed to be giving his focus. Actually, in verse 20 of this first chapter, Paul does name two men who had suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander, but they're very likely seem to have been others who were also a problem here. We know from verse three, these certain men, whoever they were, were men who taught. They had opportunities to teach in the church. We know in verse seven, which we'll get to next week, that they aspired to be teachers of the law. And based on the warning that Paul had given the Ephesian elders five years earlier, It seems likely the men who were teaching these strange doctrines included men who were actually elders, pastors of the church. That's a horrible thing when it happens. Well, that's also one of the reasons that in chapter 3, Paul gives specific guidelines on the biblical qualifications for those who would serve as elders. He wants to make sure this is clear because there's been a problem there in Ephesus. So this makes it clear from the beginning that what is taught in the church is extremely important. Throughout this letter, Paul speaks of the need to give special need to the faith, to the teaching, to sound doctrine. You'll find a phrase like that or something similar all through this letter. It's something he continues to focus on. He first describes the troublemakers as those who taught strange doctrines. So when we think about what should be taught in the local church, the first thing we see here, again on your outline, doctrines that vary, doctrines that vary from the apostolic standards of the scripture are to be identified and addressed appropriately. The word for strange means those of another kind. That means that Paul had a particular standard in mind that these teachers were varying from. The stand we would assume here would be the scriptures and that would be correct. But we also need to keep in mind at this point the New Testament was not complete. Books were being written, books were being shared. I mean certainly the church at Ephesus they had a copy of the book of Ephesians and I'm sure multiple people in the church had made copies for themselves. But Again, much of the New Testament still had not been written at this point and was not available for them. So as far as the New Testament church was concerned, there was a real dependence on the teachings of the apostles. That's the way Christ set it up. Some have spoken of it as the apostolic deposit. Today, that apostolic deposit would be equivalent to what we have in the New Testament. This is another reason that Paul stressed so strongly his calling as an apostle in the very first verse. According to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, Paul was given trustworthy revelation from God in whatever he taught and whatever he wrote. So to the extent that these teachers were varying from the truth that the Lord had made clear to them through Paul, to that extent, they were teaching strange doctrines if it didn't match up what Paul had taught and what Paul had written. So Timothy needs to stop them from teaching these teachings if they will not uh, be open to correction. Um, they, sh- they would not be allowed to teach then if they, if they would not be open to correction. I was thinking of an application here in my life, and really it's kind of, it's just gotten nothing but more prevalent in our world. I remember in college, uh, religion classes that I was taking, it was suggested, and there it was more of a suggestion. Now it's much more prominent than just being a suggestion. But the suggestion was that when you look at the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul seemed to be contradictory. And they were really trying to Point out all the things that they consider to be contradictions between Jesus and Paul. And the idea, again, that was thrown out is that since Jesus was the Savior, his teaching is the one that we should really focus on, not so much Paul's when he seems to contradict Jesus. There are many today, and it's not hard to find this, unfortunately, there are many today who basically reject much of the letters of Paul and say that it's only Jesus that we should be following, not Paul, leaving out a pretty significant part of the New Testament. They will say things like, well, if Jesus did not speak to or condemn this certain behavior, then we shouldn't either. Well, I would submit to you, that's a strange doctrine. That's a strange doctrine. Paul makes it clear that the things he taught, he got directly from Jesus himself. He didn't make it up. It was revealed to him by God. He goes out of his way to make that clear. As I started off saying, all scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable, not just the red letters. It's all profitable. So it's still important in the church that doctrines that vary from the apostolic standards of the Scripture are to be identified and rejected. Well, next we see that Paul continues along this same line when he says in verse 4, nor, not just the strange doctrines, but then he elaborates and says, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to speculation. So here we see that an emphasis on fanciful teachings is not consistent with God's administration of his kingdom, in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is central, where the gospel is central. There's a statement in verse 7 that says these men wanted to be teachers of the law, and that indicates maybe that these myths and endless genealogies were maybe fanciful Jewish teachings from the books of the law. Over in Titus chapter 1, verse 14, Paul speaks of the problem of Jewish myths. So, this may be a reference to what is described as a a a Kabbalistic aspect of Jewish faith, which is really just a kind of a mystic Judaism. Uh, And these are teachings that found different levels of teaching that you could look at the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and you could find different levels of meaning all the way through. and. So that's kind of what was going on there. And this would also include imagining stories about people who are listed in the various genealogies of the Old Testament, and again, imagining things about them that are not included in the scripture, things that just came from just the mind of the rabbis whoever and whoever who wrote those things down. Well, these were things that were being focused on. There could also be a hint of what began, came to be called later as Gnostic teachings, Um This was just beginning to show itself just a little bit at this time. It becomes a a much bigger problem in the second century. But the ideal of Gnosticism spoke of a special knowledge that a person was able to get that would give them privileged insight that others were not able to get. It was focused on a special kind of a secret kind of knowledge. It's really amazing how appealing things like this can be. This was not just a problem in this church at Ephesus um, in the early 60s. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, there was a best-selling book. Some of you may recognize it. It was called The Bible Code. The tragedy is it was a best-selling book. Some of you might remember it. I don't know. It was based on the claim that there was a code embedded in the Old Testament, that would give insight into prophecies about events at our time. Not things that were written in the scriptures, but there was a code you could discern. And there was this person who had discerned this code, and the Bible code would tell you how to come up with different things through the Bible. It was a big hit. I mean, lots of people were buying this book and reading to get the secret knowledge that the end group could know what was going on. Like I said, sadly, this was a best-selling book, and it's exactly the kind of thing Paul said that's not what we should be focusing on. That's in the line of myths and just genealogies that just gets us off. It just gets us off. Um, sometimes that can happen. Obviously, the Bible speaks much about Christ's return, uh, and so we're, Christ is coming again. And the Bible speaks about those kind of things which we should be aware of and be prepared for. You guys know this too. There are people who can get off on that so much that they focus so much on detailed predictions and detailed sometimes even dates where they get involved in this kind of stuff and get so focused on these kind of things and they end up missing the main point. We have to be really careful about these things. It's very instructive to note Why Paul said these strange doctrines should not be taught. Look again at verse 3 and 4. He says, Remain there at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which he says gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So what it gives rise to is just Speculation which can be fascinating to give your time to. But he says that's not what our focus is supposed to be. Instead, he talks about the the idea of furthering what he calls here God's administration. There's probably a number of words in your translations there because it's a word that's hard to define as far as in our English. It can be translated as a stewardship, God's stewardship. It can speak of uh, it speaks of like an orderly plan or the management of a household, um, and this really ties in with the mystery we spoke of earlier, because the mystery is the revelation of Christ, the powerful message of the gospel, and its application for all of life. This stewardship of this mystery has been given to the church to steward, to be responsible for in teaching it. The church, and especially its leaders, are to see that that truth, the truth of the gospel, is taught. And, not that, and it's a truth that is not dependent on mere speculation. It's a truth that's been, that is to be heard and received by faith. It's truth that the gospel transforms our life so that we can live by faith. And all these strange doctrines, these myths, these endless genealogies, would get in the way of that. Sometimes they could actually even contradict what the scriptures had to say. So in light of the proper ordering of the church of Christ, these things were not to be tolerated. And Paul's telling Timothy, I want you to address that. Well, then Paul speaks of the proper goal of instruction in the church. It's in verse 5. He said, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We will expand on this as far as this instruction as, as we get to further verses uh, beyond this. But for now, we're going to focus on what verse 5 has to say. And that's the next point in your outline. The charge given according to God's order is that instruction in the church should encourage growth and love for God and for people. Should encourage growth and love for God and for people. In the previous verses, the Paul, Paul seems to be speaking of the wrong uses of the law, using them in the wrong way. In the verses that are going to follow, he's going to talk in more detail about the proper uses of the law. But here he reminds us of what the focus of the law is in a more general way. And it reminds us of how Jesus responded when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you know what he said. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. False doctrine does not result in these kind of things. It just doesn't. Sound doctrine, however, will lead to a growth in our love for God and a love for people. I mean, think about it for a minute. The more you understand about who God is, the more you study and understand what the Bible says about the character of God, the attributes of God, when you think about his purposes and his decrees that we see all through Scripture— and his works of providence, which are just remarkable to think about and to take note of. And that great work of salvation that is all through the scripture. And the more you ponder these things and ponder the, the, the love that, com- that comes from God and the grace and the mercy and the things that come from God, the more you know about those things, the greater your love for him is. That's why we can have a song like Amazing Grace where a slave trader like John Newton could be saved and it was like his life was transformed, and it was amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. Doctrine results in a greater love for God and a greater love for people. It should cause you to want to praise him, maybe even to sing a song that like we talked about last week. There's places for singing your praise as well, even by yourself. It's fun to sing together, but you can sing by yourself as well. One thing, there's a warning here, and this is a warning I speak from personal experience. Some of you may have had to deal with it too, I don't know. But learning and studying the doctrines of Scripture is not to be an end in itself. In other words, you're not learning and studying these doctrines just to become smarter, just to be able to impress all your friends, you know, with the things that you know, Um, because what happens is the Bible talks about how knowledge puffs up and that's exactly what it can do. It doesn't mean don't get knowledge. It just means you use it in the right way. Our knowledge should lead us to love God better, greater, more completely to love other people as well. If it just puffs us up, there's not love in that. There's just, look at me, look at me. Look at me. Look what I know. Look at the degrees behind my name, whatever it might be. So that knowledge, so, so that, that pursuit of sound, of sound doctrine should result in love. That's the goal of this kind of instruction that he's talking about is love. Again, like I said, love for God and love for our neighbor. It gives us a heart for people as well as a heart for God. And the more you understand the doctrine of the church, the more it begins to knit your hearts together with others in the church, in the congregation. So Paul expands on this love, and then we'll close with this. Three things. First, he tells us true love will focus on purity of heart. So this is, first off, evidence that someone's heart has been changed. Not that it's perfectly pure, but it's been changed. They've been born again. They're a new creation in Christ. And so instead of looking primarily for ways to satisfy sinful desires, looking for ways to honor the Lord and do what pleases him. We're also aware of the fact that our hearts can still go in opposite and wrong directions. And so we can pray along with David in this, uh, what he prayed in uh, Psalms 86, 11. He says, unite my heart to fear your name. Bring all those loose ends together. Unite my heart so I will fear your name. I know there's all these loose ends. I know there's always things hanging out there. Bring it together. So I will love you the way I'm supposed to love you. Well, secondly, Paul says, true love will value a good conscience in all that is done. Conscience can be defined this way. It can be defined as our inner awareness of the quality of our actions. An inner awareness of the quality of our actions. We don't want to be hypocritical. About the things that we say and the things that we do. We want to focus on God's pleasure more than just our own wants. Having a good conscience means we're going to respond to the Holy Spirit when He convicts us of sin. We're going to repent. We're going to go to the Lord for forgiveness. It also means we're going to be very much aware of our obligations, the duties that we have as Christians. Uh, Being faithful to the Lord is an important aspect, really, of loving the Lord and loving others. And that's all kind of tied into our conscience. And then finally, true love will result in faith without hypocrisy. A faith without hypocrisy. Sincere faith is a faith that really exists. It really exists. Tragically, there are many who claim to have saving faith. Jeremiah started off talking about Judas. Claim to have saving faith who really are not Christians. Genuine faith is one with a good and right grasp of the truth. And it's a faith that actually makes a difference in the way that we live. It's a faith without hypocrisy. A genuine faith is going to be a true love for the Lord. And again, like I said, a true love for people. Not a perfect love, but a real and growing kind of love. So sound doctrine is a great gift for the church. And it's a requirement if a church is going to be properly ordered. But it must also result in a love for God. And in a love for people. So may the Lord enable us to delight in him. Delight in his word. And to love people. Lord we want to thank you again for your word. This was written to a church that no longer exists. I mean this was 2,000 years ago. That this was dealt with. But Lord I want to thank you. (coughs) For working for writing through Paul. In such a way that we have these same truths and we, they are just as applicable to us as they were in Timothy's day and the responsibilities he had. Thank you for the emphasis here that you make to us about the importance of the scriptures. I thank you for the importance of knowing what the truth says, what the word says, the sound doctrine that's there, but also not being content just to know it, but to know that our the goal of our instruction is that there will be love, that we will grow in our love. For the Lord and our love for each other, every one of us have room to grow. We all do. Thank you for the way we've already grown. But we know we all have room to grow. Help us to continue to grow in our love for you as we, as we apply the scriptures and the doctrines that we understand. If you're one who doesn't have a relationship with God, then I would encourage you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. A prayer like this will be a way that you can pursue that. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner I realize that I have not measured up at all to what is required of me. But I thank you that what I just heard today is that God is the God of our salvation. And I thank you for the salvation that's been provided in Christ Jesus. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to submit my life to Him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off. For those who are watching online, can reach out to us through the website.